Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Onward with chapter 3 today in the third book. This chapter is Monotheism and the Hierarchy of Divine Beings in Second Temple Judaism. So, we've been talking about kind of the historical Jewish views of God and actually multiple divine beings or gods, most likely with a kind of a lowercase g in mind, meaning subordinate to a most high God. But just as any other culture or people, the views changed over hundreds of years, just like, you know, any idea would. So we have, as a recap, there's what's called pre-exilic Judaism, and then there's Jews during the exile, and then there's Second Temple Judaism. So these are three periods of Jewish history in which they just have kind of different viewpoints that have evolved over time. So we're talking specifically about Second Temple Judaism, which is after the Babylonian exile. So with that as kind of our backdrop, well, let me read this quote and then I'll ask you a question. So you say, the view that there was a hierarchy of divine beings with the one God as the most high accompanied by a principal divine agent, second only in divine authority to God, surrounded by a court of divine beings who serve in the holy of holies of the temple in the highest heaven, was universal in second temple Judaism, the Judaism that gave rise to Christianity. The Council of Gods continued in this form throughout the period that gave rise to Christianity. Tell us kind of more about the distinctions of Second Temple Judaism, like I kind of introduced, but you, you point out that there, this is a strand that gave rise to Christianity. So are you saying that there are several forms of Judaism at this time? Well, there are, and there, there are various parties in Judaism at the time of Christ. But if we're breaking down Second Temple Judaism, we begin with the Babylonian exile in 586, which ended in 539. And they returned, and of course, one of the first things that they wanted to do was to rebuild the temple. You can read in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament about the efforts to rebuild the temple and what they did. And then the temple, they were given permission by the Persian king to do so. They returned um, 539. From 539 to 333 B.C., that's 333, Israel was ruled by the Persians. And this is the time during which the Persian king, Cyrus, gave express permission for the Jews to rebuild the temple and to exist in the land and worship essentially as they wished to. You then have the end of the Persian period and the beginning of the Hellenistic period which lasts through 164 B.C. The Hellenistic period is broken down that way because essentially it was ruled by the Ptolemaics and the Suclids. So from 301 to 200 B.C. or B.C.E., depending on how you want to talk about this, the Ptolemaeans were strongly influenced by Egypt, but were Hellenistic. That means they were Greeks. And then you had the Seleucidian time period from 200 to 164 and then the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans were a prominent family among the Jews who arose to the kingship, essentially, and they began to rule in Jerusalem. They ruled from 164 to 63. They were deposed by the Romans who came in, who ruled Jerusalem from 63 BCE, 63 years before the time that standardly we recognize the birth of Christ. That, of course, is not actually accurate, but it's how we still mark. It ends in 70 CE, which is the time that the Romans then destroyed the Jewish temple. So you have the first temple, it gets destroyed. That's the temple built by Solomon. You have the second temple that is built after the return from the exile. And it exists essentially from the time that they rebuilt it, about 500 BCE. And it lasted until it was destroyed in 70 CE. So that's the time period we're talking about. We don't have a lot in writings from the, the time the Persian period. We have quite a few writings, however, beginning with the Ptolemaic period, and certainly a lot of writings from the Hasmonean period, the Jewish pseudepigrapha, books that were written in the Old Testament style, usually using names of Old Testament prophets and writing in their own name as if though they were them. That's why they're called pseudepigraphic, and we're going to be talking more about that kind of literature. And then you have the various parties within Judaism at the time of Christ. Of course, there are the Sadducees, the Pharisees, 
we also have the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of people who broke off. They're closely related to the people who created the Qumran community. And they were people who didn't recognize the authority of the Hasmoneans. They believed that they had improperly usurped. I guess usurped is always improper. <laughs> they had usurped the priesthood authority of the temple. And so that the people who were in charge of the temple were not legitimate successors to the Levites or the sons of Aaron in order to be proper priests. And so the people at Qumran saw themselves as the appropriate sons of Aaron who were actually authorized to conduct the sacrifices and so forth of the temple. And we can get more into that as well, but that's how it breaks down. Okay. So, and that's all during the Second Temple period. Yeah. It enumerates the beginning of the Second Temple period and takes you through the, the time that the Second Temple is destroyed in 70 AD or 70 of the Common Era. And so, I guess, just the only other question before we get into the first section is, why are we zooming in and focusing on this as far as, like, the book is concerned? Are there assertions that maybe at one point Israel was polytheistic or they had multiple beings, but in Second Temple Judaism, they were supposedly strictly monotheistic, and you're just trying to show that that's not quite that simple? Is that why we're talking about this? I'm actually laying the groundwork, if you will, to give a context for the world into which Jesus was born and in which the writers of the New Testament originally would have grown up. Of course, most of the New Testament writers, I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and just kind of you know, foreshadow, none of the writers of the four Gospels were actually written by the people whose names their books bear, except for Luke. Luke was a companion, well, maybe Mark. Mark was a companion of Paul, and so was Luke. But neither of them knew the earthly Jesus. They were both excellent writers in Greek, and they would have grown up in a very Hellenistic world. Hellenistic, Hellenos is the name for the Greek language, and so when I'm talking about Hellenistic, I mean Greek. That's the way the scholars talk about this kind of stuff, and I'm just stuck with it, I guess. In any event, the bottom line of going through this stuff, it's, it's inherently interesting in its own right. But it's very important, I think, because, so for instance, let me give you a couple of for instances. The book of Hebrews is actually written by a, I think, I don't know if it's a scholarly consensus, but it's a broad consensus, that the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is written by a, a convert to Christianity who was originally a priest in the Qumran community. And so we have somebody writing a Christian document coming directly from that kind of a background. And the book of Hebrews actually reflects that background in its context, and especially in its discussions about Melchizedek and so forth. We can get into that as well in this very podcast. The other thing is, is that John the Baptist, where John the Baptist was down by Jericho in Israel, he was very close to the Dead Sea community. Basically, they were, I don't know what walking distance means in that community, but Basically, they would have been in walking distance, but you've got to imagine vast walking distance in a very dry desert. Jericho was itself kind of a, an oasis and a very prominent community. But John the Baptist was in that wilderness, and when he baptized Jesus, it was down by Jericho where the baptism very likely took place. I mean, we don't know for sure, but that would be the most likely place. And so John the Baptist is, it appears, very strongly influenced by the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. More importantly, some of the books that are in the New Testament, the book of Jude, so-called Epistle of Jude, actually quotes the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is one of these pseudepigraphic works, and it is an incredibly enlightening look at the relationship and expectation of the Son of Man, the Son of God, the elect one, in relation to the Most High God. And so this provides direct background. Now, all parts of the Book of Enoch have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, except the part that is known as the Similitudes. And the Similitudes, most scholars believe, is a Christian interpolation into the Book of Enoch, and it was very likely written by a Christian. This doesn't make it less valuable, it makes it more valuable, because what it means is that a Christian who was writing very likely during either during Jesus' lifetime or very shortly thereafter is reflecting the view of God and the expectation for the Messiah and the elect one, and the understanding of the relationship between the Most High God and the Messiah. And he's reflecting a very Christian view of this relationship. This is a book that could have been in the New Testament. It's simply that it didn't make it for various reasons, but it was written by a Christian, and whether you regard it as inspired or not, it 
clearly reflects a very learned view, also written by probably somebody who is a Jewish convert from the Qumran community to Christianity. So we have this optic into the earliest Christian views of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the various kinds of beliefs that they held. By the way, they were very Jewish. And when we get into the discussion about Christianity, we'll see that the Christians were largely simply Jews who believed in Jesus, okay? I mean, they continued to keep the law, they continued to be Jewish, they continued to have expectations that everyone would conform to the law of Moses and so forth. And so the earliest Christians were simply people who knew the Jewish law extremely well, intended to follow it, and were surprised when, as Christianity evolved, the law of Moses didn't remain the very center of the commitments made in Christianity as well. So that, that probably gives you sufficient background to understand why we're talking about this. It's extremely important for context uh, for the writings in the New Testament. But even more than that, it's just inherently interesting in its own right. And, I'm going to add, you're free to believe that the books like the Book of Enoch, and I, I mean, I'll talk about the Apocalypse of Abraham. We're going to talk about a number of these pseudepigraphic writings, and they give us a insight not only into the beliefs, but into the kinds of spiritual experiences that these Jews were having. And what we're going to find out when we talk about them is that, for instance, people who've been through the temple are going to be able to recognize something very familiar when we talk, for instance, about the book of Abraham. And I would go very far in asserting that it kind of presupposes the book of Abraham in many ways. In fact, the very first people who translated the Apocalypse of Abraham into English were two Mormon missionaries who got a copy of Bonewich's German translation of the Apocalypse of Abraham. They translated it, compared it with the book of Abraham, and said, wow, <laughs> look how similar these are. And so the first translation into English was actually done because of how familiar it was to them because of the book of Abraham. All right, that's interesting stuff. And yeah, I guess that orients us to what we're doing here. And then, yeah, like you said, the pseudepigraphic works seem to at least will give us insight into what the beliefs were at that time. All right, well, let's move on into the first section here, and Jacob's going to take the lead on this. All right, so the name of this section is Jewish Views of the Hierarchy of Divine Beings. And you pose a question, it's a good one, because we were talking about, you know, there's the pre-exilic texts, so the time before the exile, and then the Second Temple Judaism after the exile. So was Second Temple Judaism characterized by the same view of God that was prominent in the pre-exilic texts of a head God presiding in the council of the sons of God? And the answer to that is, uh, among many Jews, the answer is yes. Now, I want to begin by saying that the view of Jewish beliefs during this period that I adopt, I think, is, is represented best by the position of Adela Collins, who recognizes that there are these very prominent strains of recognition of a plurality of divinities, which are at this point called Elim, which is, I think, kind of an, a shortening of the term Elohim, but Elim means divine beings. And we have references to the Elim in many documents throughout this entire time, but not everybody held the same views. There probably were Jews at this time who held the view of what we might call strict monotheism, that is, there's one God, he's unique in every single way, there's nothing else that's remotely like him in any way, and to suggest that, that he had sons of God who were in any way really sons of God it would be nonsense. This kind of a view would have been most prominent, I believe, among the Sadducees. And the reason I say that is the Sadducees were essentially the wealthy reigning party in Jesus' day. And they would have every interest in making sure that they were recognized as the sole legitimate source of religious legitimacy. <laughs> that were in control of the temple, along with the Pharisees. They wanted to be seen as the only way that one could be a true Jew. The Pharisees, as you know, were very insistent that they had the true way of understanding the law, that any other way was a perversion. And so they have this incredible commitment to a unique source of truth, them. But that's because they, they have access to the unique source of truth. Now, by this time, it was forbidden to say the name Yahweh. So we don't see the name Yahweh appearing in documents during this period of time. Instead, wherever Yahweh appears in the documents, they substitute for it the term for Lord. And so instead of seeing in the documents that they were reading, 
Adonai is the Hebrew term that is input is stated or or vocalized whenever Yahweh appeared in a text because the name Yahweh was so sacred they refused to say it. The problem is, is there are many times when they're using the term Lord to refer to a mere human, and it's an honorific term. I mean, it, it was common in Europe for a long time to call people who were of high standing in the highest class Lord. There were lords of this manner and so forth. So the term Lord had a very broad semantic range, and so it got a little more confusing. In fact, I'm going to say a lot more confusing because of this type of a treatment and the refusal to actually use the divine names. However, the terms El, Elim, Elohim, and many other terms for deity appear throughout the writings in Second Temple Judaism. It's just that you don't see the name Yahweh. What about El Elyon, that being the most high god, right? And that would be a big characteristic of him being higher than everyone else in this council. Does that appear pretty often? Very often. It's, it's one of the most common terms used for God. In fact, th- there's a fragment that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, fragment 11 of 4Q491. So what they did is they found all these fragments of scrolls, and they took and laid them out, and in order to keep them in order, they gave them numbers. So what this means, when I say this, if I say it's 4Q491, that means that th- this is the 11th fragment that came from the fourth cave. There are a number of caves uh, that are just above Qumran. And so this is the document that would have come from the fourth cave. And I could point out, if we went to Qumran, I'd point out to you where that cave is found. And it's the 491st document that they labeled. Not necessarily that they found, but that they labeled when they were separating the scrolls. Because the scrolls, when they separated them, just fell apart. They didn't have the kind of technology we have now where they could do some kind of a, a laser reading or a microwave reading. Or they wouldn't have used microwaves in the sense that we talk about them because they were written on skin, and skin warms up when you microwave it, but they would have had infrared and, and other kinds of technologies to read them, and so what they had to do was open them and then have people who had good glasses on look at them and do the best they could to understand them. And then it was like a puzzle. Imagine that you've got a piece of paper that's a thousand years old, and you pick it up, and it just kind of crumbles, and then you've got this jigsaw puzzle that you've got to put together by looking where the letters fit. And so it was a painstaking labor by these scholars. It was a labor of love on their part. But what it says is that, and I'm going to quote it, El Elyon gave me a seat among those perfect forever, a mighty throne in the congregation of the gods. None of the kings of the east shall sit in it. The kings of the east are, by the way, enemies. And their nobles shall not come near it. No Edomite. Edomite was a neighboring people, a tribe that they didn't like very much. No Edomite shall be like me in glory, and none shall be exalted save me. I shall be reckoned with the gods and established in the holy congregation. In my legal judgment, none will stand against me. I shall be reckoned with the gods and my glory with that of the king's sons. So here we have a perfect statement of what I call monarchical monotheism. El Elyon is the one who's in charge. He's the highest god. And of course, as we've said, that's exactly what the term El Elyon means. Yet we have this perfect expression by an unknown writer at Qumran who says that he has entered into the presence of these gods, and El Elyon has initiated him there, and he is counted among the sons of God now. And when he says he will be reckoned with the gods, it means that when they number the gods, I will be one of them, and he calls himself one of the king's sons. So El Elyon is seen as a king, so monarchical monotheism isn't just making this term up. This is an explicit recognition of the kingship of God as the way in which God is the most high. I mean, it's just, it's his superiority is in terms of kingship, not in terms of difference in kind. And so this is a perfect statement of kingship monotheism in Second Temple Judaism at Qumran. Excellent. In the book, you also quote Larry Hurtado. He summarizes some of the evidence regarding Second Temple Jewish monotheism. He also does some comparisons with uh, some of the pagan versions as well, talking about uh, a high god uh, being over divine beings or or lower deities. If you want to talk a little bit about that, because while there are some similarities there, there are some pretty big distinctions that the Jewish version has as well. Larry Hurtado has done his major work. He's coming out of Glasgow, by the way, and he's done his major work on, on what he calls the Christian mutation. And the Christian mutation is that is essentially binatarianism. There are two divine beings, and Jesus is one of them. 
and he has focused his conclusion that Jesus is regarded as a divine being is that Jesus is worshipped, and so he's made a study of the ways in which divine beings or, or other beings that are not divine are, are in fact worshipped in Second Temple Judaism. But his whole point is is that worship seems to be reserved for a certain class of deity, the highest class, and that there are two of them, the Father and the Son. He doesn't regard them as identical. This isn't like what we'll talk about later, creational monotheism, where Jesus becomes just another way of saying the Father, in essence, and they're both in the same identity. And so what he's done is this very thorough study of Second Temple Judaism. His conclusion is basically that you have this hierarchy of divine beings. And so what he's looking at is you have this high God, and then you have a basically the second level is also a God. It's the right-hand man, the vizier of God. And then you have this group of, of angels who are recognized as kind of semi-divine beings. That is, they exercise divine prerogatives, but they're not worshipped. And so that's the view that, he, that he's proposing here. I highly recommend his, his writings, by the way. He's very intelligent, and he's very readable. Excellent. Uh, and is there anything else that you wanted to say about uh, him mentioning the pagan versions and then the, the distinction that well, what, Judaism what, has? With when the, you the talk about pagan there. versions, you have to realize that, for instance, when Paul is writing, Paul is writing in a Hellenistic world, that is a Greek world, where the understanding of what and who God is is extremely different than it is within the Jewish context. And so by 70 AD, the Jewish community in Jerusalem simply ceases to exist. The Christians have moved on to Damascus in Syria and with a contingent also in Rome. And so they've, they've left Jerusalem. But when we're talking about the understanding of God, when new Christians were coming into the Christian religion, they brought with them their pagan, their understanding of, of the pagan gods. And by pagan gods, what I mean is, is the various versions of the gods of Greek mythology. And that's what we're talking about. This is very neat and interesting study. And if you took mythology, this will make a lot more sense to you. But even in Greek mythology, you have a high god, Zeus, and all the other gods are subject to him. Now, he has all, all these sons and daughters. They're not different in kind from him, but he also has a half-vine, half-mortal son, Hercules. And so the idea of, and oftentimes Christ was compared to Hercules within this context. You also have the Roman influence. Remember, the Romans move into Jerusalem and take it over. They're in charge. The Jews and the Latins don't mix very well. But, you know, they do their best to get along while not getting along. But the Roman ideas of God, and in, in Rome, of course, you had Jupiter as the highest god. And you had, it kind of mirrored, I mean, if you've taken mythology again, you realize that the Roman gods mirror the Greek gods with different names. And so you have the very same situation in Rome. So whether you have Roman influence, Greek influence, or it's, in fact, um, a Jewish view, you have kind of the same thing throughout. You have a high god, Jupiter, Zeus, Yahweh, Adonai in, in this context. And there's a right-hand man, a person who is next to God, carries out his prerogatives, appears as God in his own name when he talks to people, even though he's not God, he's sent by God. And then you have all these angelic beings. Now, in Greek and in Roman mythology, these are kind of mischievous beings. And what they reflect are kind of psychological mirrors of the issues that humans have. So you'll have a god that's mischievous and, and one that's about love and so forth. And, and they're really kind of personifications of, of human failings and, and various human characteristics. But they meddle in the world. <laughs> so they're not always like the angels in Jewish thought. They're, they're not always beneficent. And they may act, in, in, in this context, they may act against the interests of the head god. They're kind of like unruly children, and Zeus or Jupiter may have to come down off his high throne at times on Mount Olympus to put them in order, but usually he just lets them play. So that's the kind of thought world that we're talking about. So when we talk about the various pagan views, you're familiar with what these pagan views mean. None of them are still real-life options for belief anymore. I don't know anybody who actually believes in the Greek gods or the, or the Roman gods, though there may be people who do. But, of course, the Jewish view of God continues to be a very significant influence in the world. All right, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the pagan versions, whether it's Jupiter or Zeus, the humans were never really directly worshipping them. I mean, they understood that these gods were up there, but the gods just kind of did their own thing. Whereas in the Jewish belief, the high God is known. He's the God of Israel. He's revealed to humans 
we have a, a direct relationship with him through our worship. I think you're referring to kind of more of a Platonistic view of God, which is probably from the quote that he's getting at. He's saying it's emphasized that the high God cannot be known in those Greek philosophical traditions. I think that's kind of more what he's asking about. Right. In the Greek philosophical tradition, God can't be known. He can only be apperceived, and I use that word on purpose, by the intellect, and he can't really be experienced directly. And so there's not really this access to him except for by the excellence of your cognizing and realizing you know, what the greatest absolute would be. But everywhere, God had an intermediary because God had to interact with the world somehow. And so, you know, when we get into Philo Judaeus later, we'll see that, in fact, um, Philo, like Plato, had to create kind of a demiurge, somebody who could be a mediator between this unknown and unreachable God and the world. And so, in Philo Judaeus, it's the Word of God that is the mediator, kind of like in the Gospel of John. Of course, in, in Plato, it's the demiurge. But the Greek philosophical tradition, which existed and was strong at this point, I don't think was all that influential. I mean, when you say that, that they weren't worshipped, certainly Diana and Athena and Jupiter and Zeus were worshipped. I mean, if you recall, when we went to Olympia, there was actually a temple there, the, at least the ruins of a temple, to Zeus. And they had a great big throne on which the very large statue of Zeus had been placed, and the people would go in there and worship. They recognized that the statue wasn't actually Zeus, but in essence, I don't know, we'd have to talk about what we mean by the term worship. But certainly people went into the temple of Zeus and worshipped him after their fashion. So the view that the Greek gods weren't really worshipped is not accurate. Just real quickly, going back to Adela Collins then. She says, Many Jews of that period, speaking of Second Temple Judaism, evidently did not conceive of God as absolutely unique in a metaphysical sense. Instead, they seem to have placed the deity at the top of a pyramid, so to speak, of divine beings who were the agents of God in creating, sustaining, and interacting with all things. Yeah, and that's basically the view that I think was most prominent. I think that's a very good summary of the beliefs about the Most High God and the gods in Second Temple Judaism. I think it's a pretty good summary. All right. Uh, well, with that, we will go on to the next section here, and Corey will take the lead on that one. So this one's titled, The Council of Gods in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, as you mentioned, I mean, you kind of explained a little bit about what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, but just to introduce them again. As you mentioned, they're found at Qumran, which is kind of like a an area, but it's also basically, they were discovered in 1946 or 47, and then they were excavated up through 1956. Yeah, what happened, so if you go to Qumran, this was before the excavations occurred there. If you go there today, you can see the foundations of their buildings. They'll show you the mitzvah. These were large ritual baths where they ritually cleansed themselves. Actually, they had a form of baptism by immersion at Qumran as well. You can find that in the rule of the community scroll. In any event, if you go to Qumran, you see that there are all of these basic holes in the, the sides of the mountain there. What happens is you've got this kind of white sandstone that just rises off the floor because it's just above the Dead Sea. Very hot. It's very low in altitude. And there's this distinct community area where they built their community. And so, you know, it's like a subdivision now. It would be a small subdivision where they had dwellings. And these people separated themselves from the corrupt priests in Jerusalem at the temple because they believed that they were not legitimate. However, they believed that they were the real and true Israel. They were the true successors. They held the true priesthood authority. And so what they were doing, they separated themselves so that they could perpetuate a form of more pure Judaism. They were kind of ultra-Jews at the time. I mean, they're not Hasidic or anything, but if you think about it, they're more like Hasidic Jews than, you know, Reformed Jews or liberal Jews. And their entire goal in going there was to practice a pure form of Judaism as they understood it. They had a teacher of righteousness who was over the community, and many scholars think that he wrote many of these scrolls. Probably the community scroll, the Sadek scroll, as it's called, Sadek means the way, so they had this council of elders and with three people who were high priests over the elders. It's very interesting as a precursor to Christianity to study. So apparently their their writings that were created all the way from 408 BCE up through 318 of the Common Era, so quite a large span there. It's through the entire Second Temple period that I just went through, all the way from the Persian period all the way through the Roman period. 
And that kind of answers my next question, which is, it's like, what's significant about what's on these scrolls? And so basically, as far as I understand, at least, they have many copies or at least partial copies of several of the texts from the actual Hebrew Bible. They have found copies of every single book in the Hebrew Bible, except for the Songs of Solomon. Well, there you go. But they're older versions of them. Are there slightly different versions of them? Is that correct? Yeah, they are. You can go to the Jewish Museum today and see the complete Isaiah scroll laid out, all 108 feet of it. It's the complete book of Isaiah, chapter 1 through chapter 66. It's an amazing sight. But that's what they were. They were also, in their view, preserving the scriptures because they were scribes and they were writing the scriptures. But this is the thing. They weren't writing them in Aramaic. They were writing them in Hebrew. And they spoke the Hebrew language. They wanted to revive the Hebrew language. Remember, everyone else is speaking Aramaic, and they would have spoken Aramaic as well. But they wanted to revive the Hebrew language as a basis for their worship. So with these copies of all these books and stuff, it's just, at least from what I'm reading, the third oldest manuscripts in existence that came from just the third oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible that we have, and definitely the most complete, or the earliest most complete, because like there's two others that are also significant, but they're just like small snippets just to prove that there were writings, but you know, this is like the whole shebang right here, so very significant finding. Yeah, and it's, it is a very significant finding, and they've found also among the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of Enoch, there's a, a, the Qumran Enoch, as I said, which is, is a lot like the Book of Enoch that we have. I mean, which is a miracle because the Ethiopic Book of Enoch we had was written and put in a Cyrillic script, and to translate it from one language to another would have, it seemed, really ref- made massive changes to it, but it was actually pretty well preserved for even for, for all the way to the 11th century. And we have copies of the Testament of Levi, which is one of the testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, another very important pseudepigraphical work, especially the Testament of Levi, because it tells about Levi's investiture as a priest and his heavenly vision and his transportation into heaven after he is vested as a priest. And anybody who reads it who's a Mormon is going to see very strong connotations of our temple ritual in all of this. So there you go. All right. Well, this section is specifically focusing on their view of the Council of Gods. And so this is just showing, again, what we're studying is the view of Council of Gods or other deities other than the one high God in the Second Temple period. And so this sheds some light on that, yes, definitely they had a view of the Council of Gods and other divine beings. So a few quotes here. You say, The Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran demonstrate that the belief in the head God, who was surrounded by divine beings and sons of God, continued among the Jews virtually unchanged into the era of Second Temple Judaism that gave rise to Christianity. Now, you left out an important word, among some Jews. It doesn't show that all Jews held this belief. Oh, sorry, yeah. But very certainly, some Jews, and a a large number of Jews, would have held this kind of a belief because they wanted to stay true to the Hebrew Bible, and of course, it's found in the Hebrew Bible. All right, and so, yeah, I guess that's important to point out. So, just like today, how there's tons of different versions of Christianity, there's different versions of Judaism. So, some may have held strict monotheism, but also many continued in this vein. Another quote, you say, the Dead Sea Scrolls also evince, which I guess means gives evidence, of a belief in human deification or theosis. For the author expresses his conviction that he has been, well, there's a quote that I didn't put in here, but it says basically that the author of the quote gives his conviction that he has been granted a seat in the council of El Elyon among the gods. He has been exalted to a divine glory that is shared by the gods in this council. However, you say such a view is not isolated among the scrolls. So, I mean, we're not going to go into those here, but in several places in the book, you point to different places in the scrolls where whoever the author is, is expressing how they're either destined to become part of the Divine Council or they already are considered part of the Divine Council. I'll tell you what I believe they were doing. I believe that they actually had a ritual, and this is reflected in the Sarek scroll, the Manual of Discipline which is one of the primary, most important scrolls because it's what has to happen in the community. It's it's the rules that they follow. After they were a member of the community for a year, they were initiated into the mysteries of the community. And the Sarek scroll tells us how they did that. 
So basically they go in and they take bread and wine and then they are essentially ritually emerged into water and then they put on a white garment, they're anointed, and then they're taught about Adam and Eve and then they make a journey, as you will, to heaven and they're admitted into God's presence. Now that all should sound very familiar to some people. So that was kind of the initiation that that they went through to become a full member of the community. And what we're seeing are the songs, a lot of these scrolls are the songs that they sung on these occasions, and they reflect what they believe was actually happening. They believed that they were being made like the gods. They were being deified. Now, this is important, and let me link this in, because this will be a major link through everything we're discussing. The Jews believed that the heavenly temple was reflected by the earthly temple, but the visions of the heavenly temple show that there are priests and high priests that surround God's throne, and they give him worship day and night, but they make sacrifices as required by the law of Moses. But more importantly, it's and we can go through, and we will go through a number of documents, where what happens is the seer goes through an investiture. And in the book of Levi, we have the same kind of investiture that we find in the book of Leviticus of the high priest when he is anointed, he's washed, anointed, and clothed in the robes of the priesthood. He puts a mitre on his head, and then in the book of Levi, he travels and has a vision of God on his throne and enters into the presence of the gods. What the Qumran saints believed, and they called themselves, by the way, the last day saints or the latter day saints, that was a name they had for themselves. They believed that what they were actually doing through these rituals was taking on them the divine nature and being admitted into the presence of the the council of the gods. They believed that the council of their community consisted of a council of gods that was the earthly mirror of the council of gods in the heavenly temple. So at the Qumran community, you, you essentially have a recreation of sorts of the earthly temple. Now, they wanted to have a real temple like in Jerusalem. They didn't, but they continued rituals in this vein. And so the Qumran saints, if you will, believed that they were being deified through these rituals. They were being made not only sons of God, but they were doing the kinds of things that are done in the Holy Temple. But most importantly, in almost all of these accounts, as the seer or the, you know, like Moses or or Abraham or Enoch or whoever you're talking about, as they go through the heavens, the glory gets greater in each heaven as they go through the heavens. And so they receive greater honor and you know, there are different levels for the angels as well. But the purpose is that they are being prepared to enter into the highest heaven. Later on, we'll look at the ascension of Isaiah, where when Isaiah reaches the highest heaven, he's brought there. And there's a robe of the high priesthood there waiting for him to put on and a garment for him that will turn him into the divine nature. And so the whole point of all of this is to reflect the divine nature through these rituals. Right, and yeah, again, Mormons will see a lot of significant and exciting things there. So, just for sake of time, let me read three quotes, and if you want to talk about any of their implications, that's fine, and then in the last section I'll have Jacob take it. Just to kind of sum up the viewpoints that we want to get from this section, in this conversation at least, I have a couple quotes here. So, one is, if a form of pure monotheism arose in the writings of Second Isaiah during the exile, which is what a lot of people posit, It is evident that the view of the Most High God as surrounded by a divine council of gods has been reconciled with such a form of monotheism by the end of the exile. Also, you point out that the notion that there was a strict monotheism which prevailed universally in Second Temple Judaism, in the sense that no other beings could be conceived to be gods except the one God, Yahweh, is false. The Qumran saints called Melchizedek, for example, and the heavenly host gods, and yet with the same breath proclaimed the incomparable majesty of the oneness of God. And then, just to bring that home, you say, the word God and the concept of divinity were more flexible and broader in meaning than the notion of metaphysical monotheism permits. So, there was no bright ontological line between God, the gods, in the council of the gods, divine heavenly agents, and humans. The view of an ontological gulf between the uncreated order and created beings is foreign to these texts, and also alien to the way they characterize the relationship with God and gods. So you point out here, and we, you know, we brought this up in the very first chapter of the first book, when people say God, especially in the traditions that we're usually interacting with now, with like, you know, evangelicals or even Catholics or anything like that, they bring all this baggage with them with this word God. And they didn't have all this baggage with them when they were talking about God in, you know, these people that were writing here. Right, they had a different baggage. Yes. 
so one of the most important scrolls is the Melchizedek scroll, the 11Q13 scroll. It was found very late in the 11th cave. But in it, Melchizedek is recognized essentially in the role of Michael. He's the general of the armies of God, and he is called both Yahweh and Elohim in the scroll. He is called literally God, and he's recognized as God because he is exercising the divine function. And so Melchizedek is recognized as essentially as an uncreated being, just like he is in Hebrews. But more importantly, he is elevated to the status of the God riding on the clouds like Baal, who is executing God's judgments. And so this scroll is extremely important. It's extremely important for the study of the book of Hebrews. It's extremely important for understanding the thought world. Now, recognize that if John the Baptist was strongly influenced by Qumran, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And it seems fairly clearly established that Jesus also was quite influenced by the Dead Sea community, the Essenes. And so when we begin to talk about Jesus, I'll, I'll note some of that influence. But I think the most important influence is that Jesus didn't have this bright line distinction between gods and human beings. He had the view that through appropriate rituals and appropriate righteousness, and righteousness here means God's righteousness, not our righteousness, through God transforming us, that we could become divine and be called gods. And so this is a very important view of deification. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, are extremely important. They were understood throughout this period to be that. And the bottom line is that when we're looking at Christianity, we can see echoes of Qumran everywhere. And I'm firmly convinced that Hebrews and probably some of the other documents were strongly influenced, either strongly influenced by Qumran, or we actually have a, a person who has converted from being a priest at Qumran to being a Christian. And the reason that that's important is that very likely there was a strong affinity between the teachings at Qumran and what Jesus was teaching. In other words, the people at Qumran, when they heard Jesus, heard an echo of their own teachings for a greater Jewish purity, but superseding the Judaism that existed in Jerusalem, but also the, the kind of teaching about you know, the relationship between God and human beings, I think, was very congenial to, to people who were at Qumran. So these are really important kinds of background for understanding Christianity. All right, great. And yeah, and as the book progresses, you'll we'll understand why. That's kind of the whole point we're talking about. All right, so let's go through the last section here. Uh, it's titled Divine Beings in Second Temple Judaism. And Jacob, if you want to take the lead on that. So you say in the book that divinity, and this is talking about divine beings in Second Temple Judaism, uh, divinity is not seen as exclusively predicated of the one God, but rather as a relationship of glory that can be shared in varying degrees. And then you share some things about the apocalypse of Abraham, particularly the description of one Yahweh. Go ahead and give us a little bit of information first about the apocalypse of Abraham. Where is this coming from? What's the time frame? What are the views of the people who probably wrote this? And then uh, let's talk about how Yahweh gives us uh, a description of the same type of God that we see in the Hebrew Bible. So the Apocalypse of Abraham is undoubtedly written in Hebrew originally, undoubtedly written by a Jew, undoubtedly written by a Jew who existed before the destruction of the Temple and is writing the Apocalypse at or about the time that the Temple is actually destroyed in 70 AD. It's written in Jerusalem, and it's written by a person who is familiar with the theology at Qumran, and is very clearly a priest. And so what happens in the Apocalypse of Abraham, there are two parts of it. One is about Abraham living with Terah, who, his father, who is an idolater. He has all these idols and talks about how a fire comes and destroys all of his father's idols, and then he decides to leave. If you're familiar with the book of Abraham, he'll see that it follows somewhat of the same kind of a pattern. Of course, they're both based upon Genesis to a certain extent. But the bottom line is, is that Abraham offers up the sacrifices that are called for in the book of Leviticus, and an angel, Yahweh, appears to him. Now, Yahweh is very important. Yahweh combines the name Yahweh with the name El, and Yahweh is the form of the name Yahweh that we find in the Lachish letters, for instance, or a close relationship. This is the way that they vocalized Yahweh during the time of Christ. And what happens is 
Yahweh accompanies Abraham. He ascends into the heavens on the wings of a dove that he has sacrificed. So it's the sacrifices of the doves that Abraham is doing. And he goes through these various heavens. He is shown in his vision, a vision of the heavenly council that has in it pre-existent souls who are going to be born after Abraham and who have been ordained to be born to the various nations. Then it's a vision of these souls as they were in the council of the gods. And so we have this vision, and then he has a vision of the creation of the world and Adam and Eve. And so anybody who's familiar with the book of Abraham is going to be able to start saying, wow, okay, <laughs> I think I see what's going on here. But throughout, it's the angel Yahweh who is with him. Now, something important happens along the way. The angel is there, and Yahweh is making clear that he has the divine name in him, and that is the source of his power. In other words, he's a being who's the right-hand man of God. And he is being recognized by God, but the power resides in his name. And so this is like in Philippians, when, when Christ is given the name that's above all other names, Yahweh is given the name of Yahweh, who is God. That's what Yahweh means. And so we see this belief, the right-hand man of God, the vizier of God, the vizier is the right-hand man of the king in the court. And we see that he is empowered because he appears as God himself using his very name. And the appearance of Yahweh, as it's described, is very similar to the appearance of, for instance, Jesus in Revelation 1 in vision. Very similar, however, also to the vision of God in Ezekiel. And so Yahweh is being portrayed as if though he has the very same glory, the very same appearance, and the very same name as God. And what's happening is that Abraham is being introduced into the heavenly temple where he too is going to be deified in the same way. So this is an extremely important document, and it gives us a real good optic into the Jewish understanding of the relation between the Father and the divine being who is going to be given his name, is going to bear the divine name. And it gives us a very good idea of exactly what they thought of in terms of the effects of the rituals, the ritual sacrifices that did what the effect would be, the reason that they did them. The Jews were not doing the sacrifices merely because it was a matter of obedience to the, the law. It was also that. But they were doing the sacrifices because in doing the sacrifices, they would be initiated into the council of the gods. You also point out that Jesus isn't the only being that is kind of given to be a chief agent or a vizier of God. You show that similarly Moses was also seen as a mediator for your people and God's chief agent or vizier in the scrolls. Do we have other instances where we have people that are given the power of the name and are able to, to act as a divine being, as God, as it were? Well, you could begin with the Old Testament, Psalm 45 and 7, where the Israelite king is addressed as Elohim, he's called God. Even in Isaiah, the king is greeted with the acclamation El Chabod, which means mighty God. And so the king, even in Isaiah, is recognized as God. And so there's this kind of recognition that the king is the earthly reflection of God, but he's on earth. And just as the, the temple on earth reflects the heavenly temple, the king on earth reflects God and his majesty. But we also reach in the writings of Philo, for instance, that there's this divine mediator, the wisdom and his word, or the logos. Logos is the Greek term for word. And there's this mediator. This becomes very philosophical because Philo is a philosopher. But what it means, essentially, is that the Logos is the one who speaks and expresses God's thought. Logos is more than just word. It is also thought and expression. And in, in Philo, the one God can't be, I mean, he, you know, he's this absolute God who can't even be cognized. So we can't reach the high God. And the word or the mediator has to exist between this high God and us in order for there to be any communication or understanding that can be given to us. And, and it, clearly, it's God's word that's going to reflect that to us. Also, the Book of Enoch, the similitudes of Enoch that I spoke about previously that were written probably either during the time that Jesus was alive or shortly before that and continuing till after his death. But in any event, the similitudes reflect, they, they, they refer to the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a very important term. As we discussed, it was a term that Jesus used to continually refer to himself, but it's also a term 
So, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus tells at his trial, at the end of his life facing death, he, he says, I'm the Son of Man that will appear on the clouds in glory. And, of course, he's claiming to be a divine being and making that claim, and the Jews perfectly understand it because they stand up and rip their shirts because it's blasphemy. So the Son of Man is also called the Elect One or the Righteous One. Now, Righteous One is important because that would be stated in Hebrew as a Sedek. A Sedek is a Righteous One. And if he's a king, he's a Melech which is what the term Melchizedek means. It means a righteous king, Melech And so we begin to get echoes here of the understanding of the divinity of Melchizedek as well. But in any event, the elect one, and I think it's fair to say that the elect one is modeled after the Christian understanding of Christ. He actually is, he's seated on God's throne and is given worship on the throne. And so he is treated just as if he's God and he's deified. The Book of Enoch is an extremely important work. I think that everybody ought to read it. And, you know, I think it gives us a very good optic into the beliefs about the relationship between the Father and the Son in both Second Temple Judaism. Because, as I said before, I think this is a Christian convert from Qumran that has taken adapting the Book of Enoch to a Christian understanding. So this is an extremely important optic into the Christianity that's existed probably both during Jesus' lifetime and immediately thereafter. It is very likely older than any of the writings in the New Testament with the possible exception of the so-called Epistle of James. And so it, it, what it's telling us is how the very first Christians would have understood Jesus probably sometime within the first five to ten years after his death. All right. Um, that comes to the end of the section that as far as we wanted to go tonight, that's about halfway through the chapter. Uh, is there anything else that we want to, to go over before we conclude for this evening and uh, pick it up next week? I think the one last important thing to say is that in the Book of Enoch, the Son of Man is preexistent. That is, he participates in creation. He existed before the world. He is recognized as God's wisdom. And when he's described, I mean, he actually... He's described as having a face like the appearance of a human being, which is the very same description that we find in Ezekiel 1 when, when Ezekiel sees God. So what we're seeing here is an explanation of Jesus Christ to make him be the image of God. Now, he's not identical to God by any means. You know, the elect and so forth is sent by God. And he's called by God the elect one because he, the elect one means he's the chosen one. So what I want to emphasize is that these, this group of writings, the Jewish pseudepigraph, is a very good way of getting a, a broad understanding of the context of the Jewish religion at the time that Jesus was born and through his lifetime and shortly thereafter during the formative period of the New Testament. Excellent. Uh, very informative and definitely helps understand as we move forward here. Corey, anything you want to add before we close? Just that we'll continue this chapter next week. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.